Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast for the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you're about to hear in a few minutes. My name is Red. I'm Miles. I'm Chen. This week, Alex will talk with Randy Farmer, one of the designers of Habitat and a veteran of LucasArts. What news do we have today? Let me see. The character designer of famous Nintendo game Star Fox and F-Zero is now leaving Nintendo. He has been working in Nintendo for 32 years and he's now 55 years old now. I don't know. I guess I would just miss Captain Falco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm not sure whether it's the original F-Zero game or the Smash game make me f- miss him, but uh, he's really such a character, like the Falcon punch and Falcon kick. It, it's just very um, original. I mean, an iconic designs that he had. I mean, I can't really imagine any of the characters being human. They're different animal bodies added so much. No, no, just my perception of who they were. It it made the game unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think part of the success of Star Fox was that it was this sort of cartoonish, sort of like realistic this this very stylized futuristic game, rather than just you know grizzled men in spacesuits shooting at each other. Like it was, it had more character than that, and it was, I think, better for it. Absolutely, that's one thing that. Nintendo has generally done well is when they put their all into kind of like a landmark or new character, they really nail it and just make it seem very uh, acceptable and unique. Mm-hmm. It's a very special style that is uh, very attractive and wholesome. I love all their different characters. I mean, you know, a, a bird shooting a wolf with a laser and then a <laughs> fox, you know, it, very wholesome but also just very enjoyable. Well, here's to you, sir. Thank you for all your well designs over these past 30 plus years. Here's to you and your future. Yeah, that's a really long time in the same company. I want that kind of job security. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, at Nintendo. At Nintendo. I want that job security. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. I'd like, I don't want like, um. if you're a, I was going to say, it's like, I wouldn't want to be like a uh, sewage treatment plant examiner. I mean, I guess that's uh, it, that can be a secure job, but a little bit, little bit smelly. <laughs> they should be paid more, actually. Mm-hmm. They should. Absolutely. They're doing a job that, do you want to do it? Well, if you do, good on you, and I appreciate you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to say, speaking of trash, uh, Cyberpunk has an update. <laughs> um, wow, that's a, that's wow. a language. Okay. Uh, sorry. Uh, I, I've been playing it. I enjoy it. It's a it's a fun game. It was uh, there's a couple things that I have issues with, but they have uh, uh, CD Projekt Red has released an apology video. That's the other piece of news. They laid out a plan in that video, and uh, one of the original founders said him and the other executives take full blame and to not put blame on any of the developers because ultimately the heads had the final word, which I think was very big of them as like a large studio for the people in charge to take responsibility like that and to deflect away from their team who was literally probably just doing what they asked. So I thought that was very big of them and good of them to do. 
It's very interesting. They do a good job. I recommend you guys go check that out and watch it. And if you're still interested in cyberpunk, they have a plan of updates and what they're planning on doing in the future to make available for you. So they'll keep us informed and hopefully we'll get another update soon. But before we get into any new games, our guest this week, Randy Farmer, is one of the original members of uh, LucasArts Games, or LucasFilm Games originally. I hope you enjoy this uh, interview. Uh, he is a uh, pleasure to talk to, um, one of the originals in the game. And we're going to get hear about what it was like uh, working for LucasArts and uh, what it was like designing one of the original MMOs called Habitat before they even called it an MMO. Uh, one of the first online interactive games that you could play. Back when internet, you had to pay by the minute. So appreciate the internet plan you have now and enjoy this interview with Randy Farmer. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We are very blessed to have Randy Farmer here, who is the man who can be held responsible for creating the massively multiplayer game, along with Chip Morningstar, who was here last week. Uh, Randy, welcome to the show. Uh, what? Uh, how do you explain to people who maybe aren't video gamers uh, how you know you created this massive multiplayer sort of genre? Uh, well, we didn't know that's what it was going to be when we made it. Um, so one of the problems with being a pioneer is you don't even know what you're making uh, when you make it. You don't know what it's going to be. So uh, back in the days uh, that we were working at Lucasfilm, Chip hired me full-time. I'd been a contractor working on Coronas Rift. I did the Apple II version of real-time fractals, and that really impressed him a lot. So he hired me to work with him, and I told him about my background in Dungeons & Dragons and everything else. And he hired me to work on this project called Lucasfilm's Universe, which was then pitched to several companies, including one uh, we later known as Quantum Computer Services, which is later known as America Online. This is their quantum computer services days when they were exclusively on the Commodore 64. And because they had George Lucas's name on it and they were trying to promote these early online service, this early online service, uh, which is premium, by the way, you paid per minute to access these services. And not only that, you only could access them after business hours because they were sharing uh, network resources with you know the bankers and the and, and the stock traders back then uh so they got together in this big project which was well it all that mattered was that it was lucasfilm and it was going to be revolutionary and it was based loosely under this idea uh people would connect and interact and do games together but the games would not be predetermined necessarily at the time during the three years we worked on it three plus years we worked on it, it was the longest and most complex Commodore 64 program in history, as far as I know. We had problems explaining what it was to people because up until then, all computer games had been single player against computer opponent or online experiences had been completely chat-based, basically. There were some really early stuff uh, with flight simulators and things like that. But we couldn't describe it in 25 words or less. And so this caused Quantum Link's marketing department to get really fidgety. And this had a couple of side effects. So, so the first funny thing is, is I can claim that we made the first MMO or the first virtual world. Those terms, uh, one which is three letters, one which is two letters, <laughs> now are easy enough to describe this thing. You say, oh, it's the, it's the first one of those. And therefore, it has a bunch of properties that we now understand or that we think we understand. And if you look at Lucasfilm's Habitat and say, oh, look, they got some things right. They definitely got some things way wrong. Uh, look what we learned from this as these things went along and then different versions of 
MMOs and virtual reality, virtual worlds came out. It kind of forked, but like this one, because it wasn't trying to be something it wasn't yet, that didn't exist yet, it was a little of both. It was so frustrating to them that they couldn't figure out what it was. They stripped it of all of its fantasy features and shipped it under the name Quantum Link's Club Carib. It's the exact same binary file executable on the Commodore 64 disk, with the exception of the cover screen art and cover screen text. But it's literally the 1.0 version of the client. And it's the same server, basically. What they did was you controlled what was seen by the people because the server told the client what objects were in what spaces. And so you just didn't share. You didn't tell the client to, to load a tentacle from. There was a tentacle avatar body where we took the tentacle animation from the original Maniac Mansion and put them in as an avatar body. Uh, there was a bunch of experimental stuff. There's a, your, av your avatar could be a top-down drawing of a helicopter or a tank. Uh, we were trying so many kinds of experiments. We had flyhead curses and all these things. That you, the idea was you, could, you had a way of passing diseases between characters. <laughs> and one of them was this curse where you could be a flyhead. So we were trying everything. We tried user uh, uh, player housing a decade before any other game would have it. We tried virtual currency, scarce objects, this long list of stuff, some of which is still in use today. Uh, but we also got a lot of things wrong, and fortunately, we were able to learn a lot about that then. Uh, so anyway, sorry, that's a big wandery path through a lot of common stuff. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. But how do you how do you invent the future? The answer is you throw a lot of stuff against the wall. And in this case, we had deep pockets. Quantum Link uh, should have probably canceled the project after the first year, but they didn't, and they stuck with it. And so it came out. And one thing I wanted to point out is the fact that you mentioned where the 1.0 binary on the disk was the same between Habitat and Club Carib. I'd like to point out that's basically the same binary we're using today on Neo Habitat, right? That is, that is correct. In fact, we've put back the original Habitat graphic and changed the text in the uh, this little word balloon text that comes up over the graphic to uh, reflect a new client in terms of there's a new loader. Instead of using Quantum Link, so one of the things, the original system was you had to go into Quantum Link, interact with their service, go through literally 10 screens of stuff to get and load Habitat. Uh, pay all the time, paying by the minute. Uh, yeah, I, that part's not so bad. It's just the, I just want to log in and play Habitat didn't exist. So one of the things uh, when, uh, one thing you didn't mention is I was lead on the Neo Habitat project, which is the open source project which we'll definitely talk about today at some length. Uh, I was the technical lead on bringing that up and running. Uh, and Alex, you can share in telling that story as well. No, I, I mean, uh, technical lead is like kind of underselling it, Randy. It's like you and Chip resurrected your baby and, and yeah. it's online right now. And people can go to neohabitat.org and play right now in their browser because of the work that you guys did. And, yeah. and Michael Steele and, some, and a lot of other people helped out. But like, yeah, and this was this was like digging it up and resurrecting it. Where I was going with that is is vice president in terms of something in games at a major studio uh, was our Commodore 64 uh, hacker uh, who contributed to the project. It was an open source project. Yeah, it's an open source project. And he contributed uh, a load screen. So now if you launch, grab the Neo Habitat binaries or play them on the browser, uh, which is running an emulator in the browser, it's like layer after layer of stuff, you will see a load screen for Neo Habitat which allows you to type in a username and immediately connect. Whether you're using a Commodore 64 or a web browser or the appropriate emulator on your PC or Mac, 
all, all the same. You're running the same binary. That is in front of the original binary now. Uh, and that just avoids us having to go through all the quantum link stuff to get you in. Because you really want, uh, specifically for a museum piece, this is part of the reason we did this, was so that at the museum, you can literally turn on the screen, type in a name, and immediately get into Habitat. Uh, when I say immediately, well, this is after some number of tens of seconds while stuff loads off the disk, because it's still a Commodore 64. It's a lot, a lot faster. A lot faster than in the old days of actually loading it off of the, what, the 1740 drives? Or what were the, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, the 15, 15, uh, 1540, I think? I don't remember 1740, God knows. There's so many numbers. So on the Neo Habitat project, one of the things that Matt was really getting at was sort of how far ahead you and Chip always were in terms of technology, in terms of development practices, in terms of having that really fast feedback loop that everybody goes for now. Like, you know, Facebook spent a billion dollars to get the thing fast enough so when you change something, the developer can see it immediately and keep working. Right. Uh, but you guys had that in the early 80s. Uh, when you got your hands on that, did you just, when you were sort of like developing with Chip, what was it like sort of work? I mean, it, it's got to be interesting being brought into the future and then experiencing maybe the future without Chip there. I know you guys have worked together a lot over the years. Uh, Habitat is is this confluence of a bunch of impossible things that had to happen, that all happened. If, if any of them didn't happen, it couldn't have happened. The application uses pretty much every byte that's available and every resource that's available on Commodore 64. We are, during an interrupt, processing disk, and we're processing the RS-232, the, the, the data coming over the wire, because it's a telephone-connected service, and rendering frames, uh, and taking user input, and managing uh, multiple screen interrupts. This is all going on. This thing is pushing things to its limit, so much so that, uh, I don't know if you heard the story, uh, there were versions of the VIC chip, which would crash the computer if you ran Habitat online. Uh, we had to change Habitat to accommodate the fact that version B and before of the VIC chip could not handle the interrupt tears necessary for us to have a place where you could type and for the word wounds to appear that were separate. So we had to combine them. But if you look at early video of the Habitat demonstrations, you'll notice a slight difference that you type at the bottom of the screen and the word balloons appear at the top of the screen because they had two interrupt tears. Uh, so this is how much we tax the hardware. Uh, and uh, like many companies at the time, we had our own hard disk, our di uh, floppy disk drivers because the floppy disk was intolerably slow and users were constantly going to be going to disk. This application is different than all the rest because every time you left, you got a new space constructed that was sent to you by a server. So it's the first time that servers sent you object descriptions that you would then fetch off the machine and put into a memory heap that was being managed with garbage collection and all that stuff that we think of as in much more advanced programming languages and in environments. We built them all. So I built a heap, I, my first heap ever. When I learned about that thing, I thought it was amazing. It's like, wow, we're going to use 14K and we're going to handle a giant virtual world with just 14K worth of heap. Uh, that led to great problems. When you do a garbage collection on code that is running, it's a problem. Uh, when you try to return to that code after the garbage collection, uh, it caused what we call the uh, greatest bug of all time, uh, gra the grandmother of all bugs, because basically a 6502, 6510, whatever the chip was, had a... 6502. Uh, well, it was a variant because it had every byte wasn't executable. There was no uh, dead codes which most languages, if you try to jump to stuff, you'll hit dead code pretty quickly and it'll, it'll stop and it'll say, hey, wait, I'm not supposed to be here. Uh, you, you, this 6502 variant doesn't. Everything executes. So jumping to the middle of 
you know, instructions for drawing images will, or, you know, just, just byte codes for colors will execute and produce random events. And sometimes you'll hit an RTS and everything will be fine, but the state, expected state of the machine is not correct. Uh, but the one thing I want to talk about that was really special was the fact this was only possible because it wasn't developed on a Commodore 64. It was developed on Sun Microsystems, Solaris boxes. And we had special hardware made that got plugged into the back of the Commodore 64, which basically gave us access to the machine. And so when we made a new version, it compiled over on this mini computer, and then we would run some software to squirt it, which would halt the machine, alter all the memory in the machine, release the machine so you could run it. This also meant we could do single stepping on a Commodore 64. I could debug code. I could look at registers. I could change stuff dynamically and say, what happens if I change this byte to that? I think the most impressive thing about that is that today people sell little boxes that you plug into your C64 that do that. Yeah. Right? Like 40, 40 years later almost. That is, you're that far ahead even on the retro computing stuff. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, that in, in, in the 1980s, in the mid-1980s, we had the Commodore 64 as a run-only device. Right, uh, it was we, where most people were still developing Commodore 64 software on Commodore 64s. You know, they were either writing it in native language, like a BASIC or something, or, or uh, but they didn't have this wonderful hardware. I even uh, spent some time with an oscilloscope once because I could get all that pit, those pinoffs. It's amazing. Uh, it was like I had some problem tracking what was going on in the garbage collector. It's much easier to watch the gar garbage collector work by having little dots of light on an oscilloscope move around in a physical grid. Uh, you know, um, And that is part of what's necessary to make that happen. And then, of course, uh, the support of a lot of engineers, although Chip and I are given most of the engineering credit, even on the client side, that's not true. Eric Wilmunder, who's with LucasArts forever, as far as I know, uh, really took care of the rendering stuff. And then there's all the tools that were developed by other people like Charlie Kellner's Ace Editor, which then Gary Winnick, and then we hired a bunch of other artists to do heads and avatar art and all that other stuff. So it, it was it kind of a first big studio game, but it was hiding online. So most people never saw it in terms of actually using it because it cost six or eight, depending when you played it, six or eight cents per minute to play. <laughs> I'm really getting the sense, though, that you did appreciate how special what you were working on was at the time. You know, some people sort of get thrown into the deep end and just think that's where they're going to be the rest of their career. It sounds like you really knew this. Everything around you was just like sparkling, new, fantastical. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really uh, appreciated. it. I got the opportunity to develop the sound editor and driver for those, those, uh, the SID chip, something people to this day still respect. I really enjoyed that. I, I, I don't know how to explain how it was possible. It, it, it was, it, what was great about the time is it was the time in my life when I thought you could do anything with engineering and these group, this people here did too. So we took on tasks that no one should have taken on to this day. I'm not sure there was any popular personal computer that could have accomplished this. We just happened to pick the right one. It uh, it's truly was a, a stupendous feat of engineering. And I should point out that also two aspects of this are open source and on the GitHub. Uh, actually, all of this is open source, but like the server and the client are on GitHub uh, and written in the various languages like PL1 and, and you know, uh, C64 assembly language. But additionally, 
the macros cross compiler for the sixty five the sixty eight thousand to sixty five hundred two, which again you were writing sixty eight thousand code and it was being cross compiled to sixty five hundred two for the C sixty four. So like you even had even more features and stuff. Like this is this is just insane. That'd be like you know writing your program on ARM today and then it just compiles into well, I guess LLVM can do that for you now. It's actually yeah. again normal now wasn't normal then. Yeah, I, I love the macros compiler because it it it, it allowed me to use. Uh, if then syntax for writing 6502 code. I mean, just really simple, lightweight macro support. Uh, but it also allowed you to literally do symbolic substitutions and all kinds of things that were really handy. Chip being not only the lead on the project, but Lucasfilm Games Toolsmith meant that we had the most brain power possible. Uh, focus right at this application. Uh, we only have two more minutes left, so what I wanted to do is give you, A, a chance to promote your podcast and uh, what you're working on right now, and B, I wanted to drill you for your recommendations in uh, DMing, tools, books, campaigns, miniatures, what, what what's hot right now? Uh, my, po- my podcast is currently quiet, but I expect it to open up soon, so I will go ahead and tell you its current name is uh, Social Media Clarity Podcast. If you just look that up, you'll find us. Uh, where I talk extensively about online social behavior and specifically design system designs for online social behavior. And I'm expecting that to go active again very soon um, as, uh, well, online social behavior has become a problem. And uh, Yes, I would I, say it. <laughs> I have some opinions based on my extensive experience since the 1970s. I've been doing online social since the 1970s when I built my first multiplayer game uh, based on Star Trek. That's also available, but I'm not going to share that in a broad podcast because it's it's mostly just for us friends who still play with it. If uh, if anyone's really interested, find me and contact me. Uh, of course, I, I want to plug NeoHabitat. I'm going to slip that in here now, NeoHabitat.org. One point that's interesting is if you go look at the GitHub, if you go to NeoHabitat.org, there's links to everything, docs to the GitHub, to everything, and you can just play it right there. Uh, Neohabitat.org's server is not in PL1. It's based on the PL1, but it's been rewritten in Java. And as much as possible, a line-for-line translation. Um, This is particularly useful. One of the reasons I'm very excited about this is Neohabitat is now involved as a reference for cases that are pending, legal uh, patent cases. So I'm really glad to have worked something in the 1980s before people started broadly patenting software, because people would later, starting in the late 1990s, patent things that are already in Habitat. Indeed, and patent trolls love patenting software. They do. And so if you're interested in seeing the Java version of the server, it's there. But also know that this is a resource, thanks to the maid for going through all the effort to get the rights to open this, uh, and to Alex and his team specifically. and then, of course, I hope you may take time and have taken time to mention the effects it had on the recent copyright changes. Ah, uh, yes, uh, the 1201 exemptions, which we I know a lot of people have been reaching out to us right now. We're not involved this year. Uh, those uh, efforts have been unified under Harvard. They're doing like one big one instead of us all doing little things. So that's literally the only uh, we've spoken to them. But we're not actually doing uh, this 1201. Our existing exemptions are being renewed, however, so don't worry about yeah, that. Yeah, so I'm very, I'm very proud of the role the MAID and Habitat itself specifically played in helping increase the exceptions so that projects like this won't be as hard in the future for other platforms. On the Dungeons and Dragons side, what's the most exciting? I, I'm just going to tell you what I like. Uh, I really like Paper Terrain. 
So if anyone's interested in learning more about paper terrain, uh, if you want to see what it looks like, go to oldschooldm.com. That's my account where I keep my photo log of all my adventures that I play with my home groups uh, and, and some of the ones at the store at uh, uh, Games of Berkeley. Uh, I, I paper train those, and I think you might see some pretty amazing stuff if you're interested in that. And then you can follow those links to products. What's interesting about this is there's a whole market in PDFs of printable terrain. And uh, when you discover that, it's really cheap. As long as you've got a continuous ink printer, or uh, uh, you uh, can really make it cheap and quickly. And I've always been very excited about that. Another thing I'm excited about, if you haven't discovered them, is contrast paints. There's a new kind of paint, which is, has three properties. One, uh, it paints a color. Two, where the paint is thinner, it is lighter. And three, where the crevices are deeper, it is darker. So it is both highlight and wash and base paint all in Ooh, one thing. Wow. What a time to be alive. Uh, yeah. So I just bought, literally yesterday, I just bought another half dozen of them. Uh, they're expensive, but it's paint your figure in one pass. That's great. That's, jeez. Uh, so if you're in, into getting a lot of minis painted fast, it's great. If you're interested in you know fine detail, if you're an airbrusher, it won't help you at all. Those are the two things I'll share. Well, definitely going to run down to Games of Berkeley and pick some of those up. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Randy, and thank you for all the work you've done and for your amazing career. Uh, we wouldn't have you know, World of Warcraft without you. And thank you, Alex and the maid, for getting me involved in the resurrection process. I've been both excited and proud to participate. And welcome back. Thank you, Randy and Alex, for that wonderful talk. One of the things I also have to say, he, uh, Randy also gave us some advice when he was talking to us. We got to get his little bit of his perspective. He is a joy to talk to a very fun guy. And he's been very instrumental in the internet uh, for how we know it. Honestly, I mean, working at Yahoo, uh, working with their mail stuff. And he has other uh, more interesting things he says uh, with regards to how to help fix the internet. So here's hoping everybody. Also, if you want to check out Habitat, I recommend you go to neohabitat.org. It's the original game that you can now play online. So if you can get a taste of what the original MMO was like, this is the original game. This is the original inspiration. Go give it a shot. And the maid was also very instrumental in, in helping bring about a new version of this game. So hopefully you all like it and get a little taste of the past. It's amazing that looking back to the days of Habitat coming out when almost, I mean, there's only a small part of people are able to get their hands on Habitat. Or even internet at the time, yeah, like and for that matter. even internet. Who would have imagined by that time that we would have such huge scale of MMO nowadays in, in the game industry, like as if it's already pretty normal. Mm -hmm. Also, just the amount of like development needed for today's games I mean, requires dozens and dozens of people working constantly on developing each individual aspect in, for, years. for years yeah, yeah. <laughs> for years in order to do all this stuff to to see what a small original team was able to do when they were basically just had like well we have this capability and this technology and this idea let's see how far we can push it let's see what we can do with this idea and in doing so they paved the way for every other game that you're going to check out and play. It's mm -hmm. something really remarkable that has a very important place in history that everybody should also be more aware of. Because they, uh, Randy even mentioned at the time that they didn't have a huge player base because 
one, like you had bottlenecked internet during the day and then it was unloaded at night, you can have free access. And then you also just the the model of pay for internet at the time was also like through a phone line, hogging up the phone line info and paying by the minute for the internet. So it's really remarkable to see. Anyways, I also want to talk to you guys about what you've been playing. See if you've been playing any new thing. Metro Exodus I've been playing recently. I'm probably about halfway through at this point. I think I've got 12 hours in it. And it is the third in the Metro franchise. I think it was Metro 2033 and then Last Light and now Exodus. It is, if I could boil it down to its bare minimum, it is Russian Fallout. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's, It's really interesting. It all takes place underground in the subway of Moscow, or at least the first two do. Uh, The first two, I think, really succeeded in gripping me in their sort of tone. It's this atmosphere. Like The game really thrived on making you feel uneasy. The third one, the one that I'm playing now, kind of dramatically changes its gameplay style because now it's... 90% 90% above ground and you, and you know you're exploring the above ground world and it's very much more sort of an open world survival game there's some crafting elements that you need to pay attention to and that shift from these claustrophobic dark abandoned spaces to this kind of still unhappy but you know much more bright and spacious above ground open world areas was kind of a jarring shift for me it's still a good game I still can recommend it heartily because I just like the franchise once again I think we'd like to thank Randy Farmer, for all of his pleasure insights on this talk today, and we want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general ideas for the museum, please shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Miles. I'm Chin. And I'm Red. Thank you for listening. <laughs>